You're tuning into the Active Mom Podcast with physical therapist, Dr. Carrie Pagliano, a real mom's guide to all things postpartum return to workouts after baby. If you're a postpartum mom, coach, trainer, or physical therapist looking for answers on how to get back to running, CrossFit, yoga, Pilates, HIIT, you name it without the fear of pelvic floor issues or doing something wrong, this is the podcast for you. Let's start the show. All right. Our next guest is gotten her PhD since the last time we checked with her uh, doctor, Christina Previtt. Um, <laughs> she has her PhD. <laughs> She's a physio that used to be in Canada, then went to the US, back to Canada. Um, one of my uh, favorites to follow on Instagram. We do them all the time. CrossFit, uh, women in sports, um, just trying to make the world a better place. Um, thank you so much, Christina, for being back on the show. Welcome. I feel like I talk to you every day, Carrie. I know. And really, I, I said this at the beginning. I was like, really, this is totally selfish because I just want to physically talk to you instead of just DMing you all the time. Yeah, I, we were trying to figure out when we were going to like really meet in real life so that we weren't just internet. I know. We're oh still gosh. we're still working on this. Like, I... I yeah. I still say that like my favorite people I have not met yet. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's the bad of social media, but there's also the good, which is Where like, is the good. Like you. yes, definitely. And so big things um, this year for you, you've got this uh, new fun paper out that finally is starting to uh, look at lifting resistance in pregnancy. And I feel like our whole profession has been like cheering to be like, Hey, we're finally getting this in writing. So give us the the quick down and dirty, like what made you kind of dive into this? Who'd you pull in? What did we learn? Where are we going from here? Yeah. So my PhD is actually in high load resistance training in geriatrics. So not even close or remotely related to the paper of high load resistance training during pregnancy or the impact of heavy resistance training during pregnancy. But when I got pregnant with my daughter um, about five years ago, I was a competitive weightlifter. I had done CrossFit and powerlifting for so long. And being the researcher, especially in resistance training, somebody who was a barbell athlete for a really long time, of course, I went to the research. Yeah. And one of my committee members is uh, Dr. Stu Phillips. And he said, you know, if you want an area where there isn't any research, go into resistance training and pregnancy because yeah. nothing exists here. No. And he was right. And so we were kind of in the weeds. And, and, you know, we've kind of been in the trenches of trying to figure out how do we best support these athletes who are resistance training, not right. even just our elite athletes, our recreational athletes who love lifting weights and mm -hmm. want to continue lifting weights when the research just doesn't exist. Right. And so to kind of give context in, in pregnancy, this is a very protected time, right? In a woman's life where the consequences of a bad decision are very dire. And so if we don't know, the answer is no. And right now I'm working on a systematic review on resistance training during pregnancy and trying to look at the prescriptions of other intervention studies that we have in the literature. And my goodness, it's way more underdosed than any of our older adults. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. Needed exercises for 16 weeks. Resistance training with a max of three pound dumbbells oh, or geez. one or three pound fair bands doing nothing that would load the core musculature. and we just also didn't have this big and growing group of women that were saying, I refuse to accept that, right? right. Like that's just, we have to kind of recognize that the research is generally a little bit behind clinical practice. It, it goes in both directions, but CrossFit and powerlifting and weightlifting really has boomed in the last 10 years. Right. And it's probably been even less than that, that people who are pregnant are like, well, I'm going to keep doing this, whether my providers are telling me I can or I can't. Yep. And so that's kind of how our paper started. We had to show first with the literature being here, right? Of saying, well, you can resist and strain, but the max that a person has lifted in a research trial so far is 10, 15, 20 pounds. And we're going to do an RCT where you're lifting 200. You know, I would never get through an ethics board. You know, you would never get through that. That's so a valid point. <laughs> so the first thing you have to do is say, guess what? There's this big group of people who are doing it and let's kind of try and see what their outcomes were. And that's yeah. where the survey was. And so I uh, 
emailed Margie Davenport and she's been on this. Love her. Yes. I, and I love her. She emailed back this random physiotherapist who was doing a geriatric PhD who said, I have this idea. <laughs> Would you help me figure out how to do it? Yeah. And we pulled in Marlies DeVivo, who is uh, very instrumental in the, some of the UK uh, pregnancy guidelines. Lori Forner, uh, she's her. in Australia. She's yep. amazing. I get to meet her in real life very soon. Yes. And um, Miranda Kimber, who's a member of Marky's Lab. And we were able to really blast this on social media saying, the first step we need is to show that there is a group of individuals who are doing, doing heavy this. resistance training and let's see what your outcomes were. And now our next step is how do we follow women forward and get prospective data I on see. people who are getting pregnant and continuing. So now we can have an idea of, are they lifting this or are they lifting that? Are they modifying? What is their outcomes look like during labor and delivery? What is their baby's outcomes like? And what is their postpartum? return look like? So how do we follow people forward? But this type of stuff takes so much time and we need to have the background information. So we have this survey now that says that people are heavy lifting. We're working on the systematic review that says, you know, there's a big gap here. We don't have right. anything that even I would consider moderate intensity as a resistance trained athlete. It would definitely be moderate intensity for some who don't have that same exposure. Yeah. But, you know, 20 pounds for my athletes who are squatting 250, it's nothing. Going yeah. into their pregnancy is not is not a sufficient stimulus for them no, to No, it's laughable. It's laughable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to put like the other researchers on blast. Like it it is we do have to kind of take this stepwise progression, but we now have this overwhelming and growing group of women yeah. who are like, this is not sufficient for me. Yeah. And I really need the answers. Well, you have a couple really good points, I think, that you raised. And one is to remember history. And your kids are now how old? Four and two. Can you oh my God. That? Well, it, it feels like yesterday you were just posting on all the stuff you were doing with your two year old in pregnancy. Because um, my kids are a little bit older. I feel like I, I was in that generation that we, I remember those lighter recommendations because women were not lifting. And I think that's a really important point. I think, Christine, you kind of brought it up in, in Up to Speed, where women weren't doing marathons, women weren't doing Olympic lifting, and then they were. And then it was just a matter of women being in that space. And then it was a matter of women continuing to be in that space, stepping up and then throw in life, pregnancy, all of that. And I think if you don't pay attention to that, you can easily sit here and be like, well, why isn't there research? Because we weren't freaking doing it. Yeah. We weren't doing it. But then the next point I think is so important to understand, and I appreciate you making research accessible, is we can't just start with that. We have to start with people are doing this. Now let's look at the gap. Now we can move forward. Those steps have to be laid in the research in order to get to where we're going. You can't just be like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And it's so funny because people will say, well, it's a cross-sectional survey, Christina, like, you know, like these internet people who are like being these gurus and, and saying that yeah. the research isn't good. And I was like, one, you, you should try and do it yourself. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Teen months to get out a survey into the research, but also like you have to understand the research process that we right. grow our levels of evidence based on the accumulation of evidence that builds on each other. Yes. And so we need these foundational pieces, these surveys, these Delphi's, these qualitative studies that are looking at what clinicians are doing in practice, these even these clinical commentaries that technically aren't research studies right. to build this interest. And trust me, it's happening. Like, you know, I'm oh, talking yeah. to Linda McLean's who are looking at pelvic floor morphology. I'm following the Janet Shaw's and Ingrid Nygaard's and Carrie Bowes who are trying to build it and they're coming from different angles like it yes. really is coming it just it takes time and it takes yes. diligence and precision and so we are building it's just not as fast as we would but like that's i think it's an important thing to understand and i totally admit i am one of those people that um you know a caribo paper comes out and i'm like yep and you're looking for that thing where you're like, this is going to alter my practice. This is gonna, and, and the thing is, we're still in that foundation building and this has to occur. And for those of us who would like to go faster, um, we just have to be patient. And I think it took me a while to realize that like, these are the steps. This is the groundwork that has to be laid for us to get where we're going to go. Yeah. And we're starting to see like some of the stuff coming out of uh, Carrie Bo's lab is 
things like what is happening from a pelvic floor perspective, pre and post resistance training. Yep. What are, what is happening for our nulliparis or Nelly Paris, depending how you say it, those individuals who haven't delivered yep. or given birth, yep. what's going on in their pelvic floor when they're resistance training for several years, right. what's happening in our exercisers who haven't had children. And then what does obstetrical history have to do with some of our pelvic floor dysfunctions? Like that evidence again is starting to come up and then what are the differences between the Valsalva maneuver? Because if you're talking to a cardiologist yes. holding your breath for 15 seconds with your nose closed and your ears closed yeah. and just looking at your hemodynamics, if you're talking to a pelvic floor physical therapist, it's bearing down like you're birthing a baby. If you're talking to a resistance trained individual, it's abdominal bracing. And so right. you're trying to coalesce all of these things together and figure out the terminology and make sure yep. that everyone's on board and then hybrid them all together. And then when you're pregnant and now you have hemodynamic changes, you have maternal cardiovascular system changes, you have resistance training changes in terms of anthropometrics and you're having pelvic floor strain. Now it's like, what do you do with all that? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because that was literally one of the things I wanted to ask you that I I do think, especially for people, um, maybe primarily physios that work in this space and are working with lifters, but may not lift themselves. I think it's very easy to do this is good, this is bad. Um, unpack Valsalva versus bearing down in a language that would be most relevant, I think, to like a physio or a trainer or something like that. Yeah. So really cool. I'm actually writing a clinical commentary right now that Bless you. this Bless and you. talks about how to put this into your pelvic floor evaluation Thank and kind you. of this out. Yeah, you're welcome. We're, it's hopefully going to be published in the next couple of months. But um, so, okay, when we're looking at Valsalva, in a traditional sense, this is the exter- like the production of force against a closed glottis, aka you're holding your breath and generating pressure in your belly. What's going to happen is we're going to have this sharp increase in blood pressure that's going to happen. It's supposed to. And then your blood pressure is going to drop. Your heart rate is going to go up and you're going to see an increase in pressure throughout your body. This is going to happen in your brain. This is going to happen in your eyes. This is going to happen in your thorax. This is going to happen in your belly. And what that does is it creates stiffness across the system. That's an advantage in resistance training. Mm -hmm. So when we are doing this for kind of switching from cardiovascular changes to resistance training, why we are doing that is when we have this increase in pressure in our trunk, it's going to get all of our muscles around our core canister to fire a little bit more. And so that's going to make our trunk more stiff. It's going to allow us to produce more force and therefore it's going to make us feel stronger. And there's a really seminal paper that was released in 1992 that said, you know, once we're over about 80% of our one rep max, at least transiently, we are going to hold our breath. Right. And we see this all the time in our new moms, right? Who are holding that car seat coming in. They're taking a couple steps, holding their breath and going, (sighs) and that is a Valsalva. And so it can be demonized as something that is bad because yes. of the next piece, which is how we consider Valsalva in pelvic floor ha- rehab. But we do it all the time, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, of course. And so for pelvic floor rehab, we use the Valsalva or bearing down as a part of our prolapse assessment, where we get a person to strain down as if they were going to birth a watermelon or birth a baby or have a bowel movement, whatever terminology you will, you will use. And it's basically a range of motion assessment of the vaginal walls. That's the Mm -hmm. way I kind of picture it. And so when you think of this term Valsalva, where we're starting to go is that Valsalva in and of itself is for card, like cardio, right? What are the hemodynamics of Valsalva? When we're thinking about it with resistance training, we're talking about abdominal bracing. Mm. And when we're thinking about it in the realm of pelvic health, we're talking about straining. And when we change that terminology to the true hemodynamic Valsalva maneuver and then abdominal bracing and then straining, now we get a little bit of a clear picture about what we are trying to look at, what we are trying to investigate. But because the use of the word Valsalva has been one associated with high blood pressure, two has been associated with straining, when we try and translate that into resistance training, 
light bulbs go off, like flags start to go up and say, well, no, 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 because this is bad because I don't want your blood pressure to go up, especially if you're pregnant. And I don't want you to strain on your pelvic floor because it's already stressed. And so there's been just like this, like turf war around semantics that we've really had to kind of tease apart. And now that we're getting on the other side of it, the beautiful thing is that we can start to really learn a lot about how to best support our athletes who are peeing when they are lifting weights. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think the other thing that comes along with that, usually in conversation, you mentioned earlier, breath holding. And typically when I'm working with pregnant and postpartum moms, I, I want to understand what they were taught. And I also want to be clear that what they were taught wasn't wrong. Um, and I think that's important too, that like you may need to play with things um, in a moment and then be able to change to a different strategy and whatnot. But again, the, the whole idea that, you know, moms are taught, oh, breath holding's bad. And then they're like, but I was taught this and I lifted this long. And, but again, people not in that space, just like you said, like if you're going to get close to your one rep max, you're going to hold your breath. Like, I'm sorry, but unless you've been next to that barbell and tried to lift that barbell, which is why I think every physio should lift a freaking barbell. 100%. Um, just try to lift a heavy couch if you don't yes, want to go your barbell. Exactly. Lift a heavy couch, I'll be what your breath does. You have to. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. Um, so thank you for clarifying that. Because I, I feel like those are two things that get really like, you know, good, bad. And it, it, I do think it is getting better now than it was, say, like a couple of years ago. But that I, I feel like <laughs> lots of times in pelvic health, we have these words that we use to describe things and then they're used differently. And I, I, in the research, it must make it really hard to do studies because people use the words in different ways and it's not seamless. It's not consistent. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I got asked to write this commentary about how do we start to clear this terminology up so that we can really go forward and learn. And, you know, you are, when you're working with somebody who is leaking, whether they're pregnant or not with resistance training, there's a lot to learn from a standing assessment about how they are bracing. Mm-hmm. Because the other thing that we see is that there are some individuals who were taught how to brace by inhaling and then bearing down into their belly. Yes. Right. A lot of men can brace that way. I still don't think it's the most efficient pattern, but they don't have the same rates of pelvic floor dysfunction that women do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that bear down or that straining when you're supposed to be bracing. Now, again, we have this terminology that are you bracing or are you straining? Because if you're straining, then the first thing that I'm going to do with you is to teach you to move from a straining strategy mm-hmm. to a bracing strategy. Right. And if I'm doing an internal assessment in standing and I ask you to brace like there's a heavy barbell on your back and my finger pops out, then yeah. I know yep. that you're potentially using a less efficient pattern that may yep. make you more vulnerable to peeing under heavy load. And the first thing we can do is start clearing that up. It's a beautiful thing. Right. And that's where I think you're going to love, hopefully one of, one of these days you get yourself a, a real-time ultrasound. Um, that's so freaking fun um, to play with in standing, to look at pelvic floor strategy and to look at abdominal strategy and watch those recruitment patterns and see what it translates to what you feel. And it really, that was probably the first thing I ever learned with ultrasound when, cause back in the day, I don't know if you were ever taught this. We're like, Oh, TA, when TA contracts, it'll pop into your fingers. Bullshit. Like, no, that's, that's internal bleak. Like, I'm sorry. It just is. And I'm not at that anybody died because you know, that's what I was taught or anything like that, but it's just wrong, you know? Yeah. It's so funny. We spend so much time in the low back pain literature trying to get TAs to turn on. And then we realize that we're it, not even doing the right thing. just get the yeah. core stronger. And I feel like pelvic floor is just like, you know, 10 I years know. with the imaging and prolapse and low back pain, like that similar yes. discordance. And then we're going to see the same. We are. We're like, I, I was having this conversation earlier today. We we're talking about like, you know, like rando running things. I think we were talking about like barefoot running, how that was like the whole, that was like the cat's meow years ago when like born to run came out. And then now all of a sudden it spilled over and to like, you know, pregnancy and postpartum. I'm like, why are we 10 years behind everything? (laughs) So I was at Linda McLean's lab in the university at the University of Ottawa, and she's doing real time ultrasound. She's doing some work around using ultrasound and doing assessments in incontinent versus incontinent runners. And oh, you would just love what's going to be coming out of her lab. But as soon as she was showing me some of this ultrasound, I was like, oh my gosh, could you imagine if we did a study that looked at bracing versus straining? Like how beautiful. Like I was like, how do we get this to happen? You I was like messaging Shafali Christopher and Rita Deering. I was like, how do we do it? <laughs> like trying to like 
rare bringing the troops around how to if, if you need to borrow a body i'm right here for you so. <laughs> no, awesome. absolutely no, I mean, it can um, oh yeah 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 no it's it's like it's one of the and that's the thing like you can start to turn your body into like little party tricks that's what i do with my um with my diastasis and coning and doming and that sort of thing like you really like oh if i do this it does this and it's oh, yeah. really fun to watch yourself you really have to make sure that you don't spend too much time like ultrasounding <laughs> yourself <laughs> so i have a very sad story related to that don't yeah i might as well share it um, I actually caught my own miscarriage on an ultrasound. So that's also why you should not necessarily do your like ultrasound yeah. yourself all the time. Yeah. It's totally fine. Um, it's one of those things I, I suspected it. And then my friend, I was like, Hey, so he's like, yeah, no, no good. So oh. if you only ultrasound yourself, this is like, a um, who's that guy that ultrasounded his wife, like every day, um, crazy guy, Tom Cruise, um, only ultrasound yourself for Musculoskeletal purposes. That's our disclaimer today. Disclaimer. Yes, absolutely. That's our disclaimer. All right. All right. Moving on. Um, there was another thing when I was reading your paper that it just like sparked the myth of you, you, you address um, resistance training in supine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So when we were talking about the questions for, I'm sorry, I didn't even. I, no, no, no. Just go. <laughs> um, so when we were looking at how to generate the survey, we were talking to, you know, Lori in Australia and Marley's in UK. And we're like, what are these myths that we that we see? Yes. And we didn't even capture all of them. So one was, can you lift in supine? One was, can you Olympic weight lift? Can you hold your breath? We're kind of the big three. Yep. Another one that she had brought up that we actually didn't even bring into the paper was, can you lift overhead? I didn't even think hmm. that, that, like, that was another one that some people think that because of the load being over your head and the demand on your heart okay. to lift a weight over your head again, like something. Yeah. We are resilient. I think that we, you know, we can lift, but yeah. Um, some of these things that get perpetuated as like right. usually bad cases of telephone or, you know, being overly on the conservative end. Yep. Um, but we were just trying to say, okay, what are the things that we hear in clinical practice? What are the things that sometimes come into our research guidelines, clinical research guidelines? Right. And can we do subgroup analyses on these people that avoided supine exercises versus didn't, who right. fell salvaged during pregnancy versus didn't, that Olympic weightlifted versus didn't. And are we going to see any differences in the rates of different complications? And we tried to investigate as many different complications that could potentially be associated with these things as we could. And then we just had to see what the numbers shook out to be. Because sometimes, you know, if everybody avoided supine exercise, we wouldn't have enough of an end value in right. that group to be able to compare. But thankfully, we were able to in each of those uh, subcategories, we were able right. to kind of tease them out. Now with supine, the, I mean, the primary, you know, resistance one I'm thinking is, you know, bench. Um, were there any other ones that, that kind of popped up? Um, we didn't ask about specific exercises. We asked about, did you exercise in supine? Gotcha. But that could have been anything like glute bridges right. or any type of abdominal exercises on your back. Um, right. Bench press was the big one. You know, it's this is so nuanced. But the hard part, too, is that if you have a power lifter, they're not actually flat on their back when they're bench pressing. Right. When you pin your shoulder blades back, you're actually in this bit of an arch, which yep. would in my mind, actually take weight off of that, that vena cava, that blood supply. And so right. I would actually think that risk in a true bench press position would be even less than if you were doing something like Completely a supine bridge. Right. bridge. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think this just gives the nuance that one, it is safe to exercise on your back. Yeah. But if you are feeling dizzy, unwell, don't feel good then we're going to pull you up to an incline and get you right. doing incline bench press instead. And yep. you know, I've had clients that are immediately symptomatic, like are warming up with a yep. glute bridge. And they're like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And I was like, get off your back. That's like, what I, I always, I always say that. And it's always the first time moms because it's right up there with like deli me and things like that. I have a friend I went to PT school with who's Greek and she's like, you can't tell a Greek woman she can't have feta. I was like, fair game. Um, but like my happiest moments at 41 and a half weeks with both my kids, I would wake up flat on my back because they were, I could breathe. I was like, I can breathe. And I'm like, trust me, you're gonna know, <laughs> you're gonna know if it's not right. And then we just change position, but we scare the crap out of women 
Yeah. And we don't like the rates of clinical supine hypotensive syndrome is actually quite low. It's just, again, we want to make these recommendations to make sure that we are trying to mitigate risk as much as possible. But the messaging doesn't tend to be, here's my empowerment knowledge for you. This is what you need to know. It's let's scare you so that you don't do it. And so we were hoping with this paper that we were going to start pushing back against the fear focused messages and start moving towards the empowerment it's it's such a nice way to do it though because it's not like you know two middle fingers up lay on your back you know go for that it's like hey this is what people are doing this is what happened with it and you know for now draw your own conclusions but like it, it seems to be that people are doing pretty okay so let's let's actually you know talk about the findings let's kind of run through those um kind of questions and and what were the findings that you guys came up with Yeah, absolutely. So we could touch on the Valsalva maneuver. And what we saw was that for those that continued to Valsalva during their pregnancy versus those that didn't, um, we did not see any increased risk of fetal maternal delivery outcomes that we didn't see any variation. We also didn't see an increased prevalence of pelvic floor dysfunction postpartum in those that continued weightlifting versus those that didn't. Now, some people have misconstrued my paper and said that Valsalva is protective. That is not what I said at all. Mm-hmm. It said that the risk was not higher in those that Valsalva versus those that didn't. Gotcha. And so our paper grows on two research studies that have looked at the hemodynamics of doing Valsalva during pregnancy. One was at a 10 rep max leg press, and the other one was an inclined bench press up to yep. 50 pounds and showed that there was no shunting of blood away from the placenta. There was no adverse fetal heart rate responses during Valsalva. And now our paper was able to add to that literature and say, well, at least cross-sectionally, those that continued Valsalva to do, perform Valsalva did not have worse outcomes. So they didn't have any increased risk of gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, that higher blood pressure response that we yep. try so adamantly to avoid during pregnancy, like that didn't contribute to any sort of blood pressure issue. And then another thing that people say is like, you know, you're your pelvic floor is under so much strain during pregnancy that we should avoid the Valsalva because it's putting extra pressure. Mm-hmm. And you know that didn't kind of pan out in the postpartum period. What, you know, I used to say three years ago, Christina used to say is don't Valsalva during pregnancy. And now I say, here's a range of breath options. Okay. And, you know, what, some's going to feel better than others. Mm-hmm. And guess what? If you can Valsalva versus breathe with exertion versus free breathe, if you're a CrossFitter, you're going to be so much better at Metcons because right. you can cycle a barbell better without right. going so high, which will go higher in using a Valsalva than in free breathing or exhaling during the lift. So I give more like these are options for you based yep. on how you're feeling versus being a little bit more of a backseat driver with respect to my my recommendations on on how to manage the exercise when you're navigating it yourself. So um, that was one thing that came up. We saw in general that individuals who continued heavy lifting had lower rates of pregnancy-related complications. So we saw a decreased risk of gestational hypertension and preeclampsia, gestational diabetes as compared to national averages, which Again, we would probably assume that that was true because we know that individuals who continue to exercise during pregnancy tend to have lower risks of things like high blood pressure and gestational diabetes during pregnancy. That does not mean that they are immune, but that we're stacking the deck in our favor. I don't want people to think that if I, there's no way I'm ever going to get this. So they're disappointed if they're doing all the right things and then they get high blood pressure. But Again, Valsalva has that increase in blood pressure. And so the thought is, well, maybe it's going to cause a risk for blood pressure to be high if that's something that's bad during pregnancy. We didn't see that in our study. And then rates of perinatal mood disorders were lower postpartum. So lower rates of postpartum depression and anxiety than um, individuals uh, or compared to national averages. We were kind of, we didn't have a control group. We were comparing to to national averages. And so that was something that was really positive as well that we saw Mm -hmm. with the paper. Again, we see that people who are more physically active tend to have this protective effect around um, things like mood disorders across the lifespan. But one of the things that I think could be a potential confounder there is that CrossFit also has this community tribe. Right. 
you know, like we yeah. couldn't possibly tease apart those that yeah. were resistance training and it was like the res- the strength training that helped or was it you were strength training in a box with your friends, and, right. and, your friends and you know, you see all those, those postpartum videos of like coach holding baby and mom trying to get a little bit of a workout in and like, yep. you know, all of those, those things. Yeah. So um, those were some really big highlights. And then postpartum, we started to capture a little bit of information around when people started to get back, when they started holding their breath again for lifting, and when they started using a weightlifting belt again. Mm -hmm. So the mean was 12 weeks. And as soon as I say 12 weeks, people are going to say, wait, 12 weeks to start strength training. And so that was the mean, which means that we had two standard deviations below. Same deal with running. We have the same conversation. above the above and below the mean so 12 weeks was the average and then uh about four and a half to five months was the average that people were starting to hold their breath again with lifting and between five and a half and six months postpartum people were using weightlifting belts and now we haven't tested that out to see is that the most appropriate time we're just kind of characterizing what the big creation is did um but it gives us you know some guideline to see what's the next step like how do we test out this protocol and see you know maybe when is the right time to start using a weightlifting belt? When's the right time to increase Valsalva? What is your body ready for right. in that postpartum period to start giving us some return to sport guidelines? So so with, with this group, with the survey, what was the average number of years of participation prior to pregnancy? Oh my gosh, we had, it was a wide range. Yeah. I think we had people who were, Oh my gosh, don't even quote me. I think I have some of the paper guidelines up here now. Um, in terms of how long age of first delivery was about 30, which is pretty consistent on first delivery with our national average. I actually do not remember how many years. It was several years though. We it, these were not new lifters. I got that impression and and, and that was kind of the, what I walked away with was if you had been doing this for a while and if you were on the heavier side of lifting, you were lifting more through the duration of pregnancy, you were more apt to participate sooner, um, start to that that was just kind of the gut feeling that I got after reading the paper. And like, I don't think this would necessarily apply to like, your newbie that's like, hey, they just started working out at like, six months uh, for six months, and then they got pregnant, like, that's a very different athlete than somebody who's been actively in the, the yeah. gym for you know six years or something like yeah that. so our pre-pregnancy numbers we asked about their weights and it was almost a 200 pound squat 120 oh, pounds uh their deadlift was 105 kilos so average was 230 pounds for the oh, deadlift so these are strong these are, girls <laughs> right they're probably the training history and you're right i think that's important right because yeah. we want like, they have comfort with these yes. movement patterns. Yes. And it it makes no sense to these people that have you know been doing this no. for three years. They get pregnant and they're like, okay, so you want me to stop doing all of the things that I do for exercise? We see the same thing in running for people right. who are that clock a lot of miles pre-pregnancy, they're definitely more likely to continue running during yes. their pregnancy than those that didn't. Right. And they're more likely to get back. You know, some of our elite runners are running again at four, five weeks. Yes. Like that study that just came out around elite runners, they're at like yep. 75% of their pre-pregnancy volume by 12, yep. 14 weeks yep. where some guidelines are say, like, you know, some people are saying you can't do anything until 12 weeks. And they're like, hold my water. I'm, I've got a couple miles to do. I'm- I know. I know. And that's where I, 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 I have this conversation with people. I'm like, you would expect that um, elite athletes would have the best guidance. And the fact of the matter, they have even less than the average recreational athlete because they don't have like half the time they can't get a study that meets the criteria because you're not supposed to like do studies on pregnant women when their heart rates are above certain points. Right. And they're like, Oh, well, this is just, a, you know, that's zone, that's zone two training. <laughs> like right. super easy. Right. Yeah. Well, um, and then, so thankfully like, you know, Margie's group just came out with that right. paper around high intensity interval training yep. that got them up to 90% of their VO two max and showed that there wasn't any blips in fetal heart rate responses that yeah. they actually saw an increase in heart rate response which is so cool that we're seeing that aerobic training and mom is actually doing a little bit of aerobic training with babe, nice. which is cool to see that, you know, again, that narrative is starting to change. Yeah. 
but getting across an ethics board is tough when you're saying like, I really want to push these pregnant women where the idea, like the societal idea, not even the science-based idea, the societal idea is that there's some fragility there that we need to protect. And so it can trickle into, you know, what we can get away with from. Well, and yeah, I mean, that's where I give so much credit to the women who were kind of the pioneers doing that because you know, you know how it feels the first time you're pregnant. You don't want to do anything wrong, but if they've been in the gym for a long time, that's who they are. And, you know, you know, your body ideally, and you're not going to do anything stupid to harm your baby. But at the same time, like it takes some kahunas to be like, all right, no one knows I'm going to just keep going. And clearly this has been happening for years enough for, you know, to you, because you had how many people that answered your survey? It was a lot. 679. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, easily within like a couple of months, 679 people lifting really, really heavy. Clearly the culture has shifted there and you're just quantifying and just yeah. reporting on it and being like, no, this is what's been going on. Now yeah. let's go back and, and look and see what's up. So, yeah, absolutely. So personal story, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I had a big weightlifting meet that was a couple months out and I was trying to qualify for nationals again. And so I got pregnant and I was in pelvic health. Like I did postpartum exercise programs. I was fairly educated, I would say in this space, but I remember the first time I tried to snatch. So if you're not familiar with a snatch weight from the floor contacts hip, I had just found out I was pregnant and I started to cry in the gym because contact sports is contraindicated during pregnancy. And so I was like, is, does this count? Like I'm technically making contact. And thankfully I had a high risk OBGYN that I knew. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to call him and I was like, what do you think? And he's like, your abdominal, like baby so far behind yeah, your pelvis. Your abdominal wall is so like right. used to that contact point. Like that is not like you falling when you're like, you, if you're a new snowboarder and you're like tumbling down a hill, like they're, right. those are totally different things. Yeah. And I was so thankful for him because I then I, you know, I was 10 weeks postpartum. I was still using a weightlifting belt. I PR'd my snatch at that competition. And then I told everybody that I was pregnant, <laughs> right? Like Whoops. immediately after. Um, but the only person that knew was my coach at that time who was freaking out that I was, you know, 10 weeks pregnant. Right. But, you know, those types of things are, are what prompt people to be like, I'm not okay with this being the standard. And so when I was doing a PhD in geriatrics, I message another researcher in a completely different field. And I call it my research side hustle. And now, you know, we're starting to be able to develop more and more research in this. And it's just, it's so amazing to be in the pelvic health space right now. Oh my God. I know everyone feels like it's so slow, but it's so. No. And, and it's like, yeah. And that's where I, 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 this year I have really reflected on how far things have come because I think I've been in this 25 years now. Um, that was, that was two five for those of you in the back. Um, no, and, and, you know, not for nothing, my son's going to be a teenager in a couple of months. He's going to be 13 and you do some reflecting. And I was like, we really have come light years and as frustrating as it gets when you hear people spewing nonsense, there's just as many, if not more, people that are spewing good evidence and putting good stuff out. And like, I can't even keep track of what papers are out because there's so many. And that was not a thing even four years ago. Yeah. Even, it just it's wasn't. so cool. I, I'm, yeah, it is unbelievable to see, you know, I've been in practice 10 years and it's yeah, even that in that amount of time, how much mm-hmm. is coming out to start yeah. to to push the profession forward. Yeah. And it's also a cool time because, you know, it kind of is this this growing group, largely dominated by women who are getting, you know, their their PhDs and that they're they're internally trained pelvic floor PTs. You know, we have the Shapali Christophers, the Rita yep. Deering, the Karanya Donnelly's, like yep. Ray Forners, like I could just go on and on, Linda McLean, yeah. like all incredible voices that are just doing so much. And you know, like Margie is still fairly early in her career. Linda is too right. like they're they're also pushing people like the Jenny Krugers, like I there's so many yep. names where they are 
one, they have done so much pioneering work to help set the foundation yep. and they are bringing partners in such a collaborative way yep. to be able to start expanding and working together. Like I have not reached out to a single researcher in this space as somebody who does not have a PhD in pelvic health. And they're like, yeah, let me help teach you. Right. Like, let us collaborate. Like, how can yeah. I help you? Like, how do we figure this out together? Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's so amazing because you don't see that in every space in research. You don't see that, you know, in pelvic health sometimes. And so there's just yeah. also this big change towards collaboration. Yep. And it's just so beautiful, like to, you know, be able, like, just like you said once to me, you're like, if you ever need anyone to help with research, like I'm in, but. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> I've had so many people reach out and say, like, how yeah. can I help you? Yep. And that's just amazing to to be in this space at this time. And yeah. for our patients that are pregnant at this time, I think we just have so much more empowerment-focused messaging than we had before. And it's yeah. Well, and there's baby booms in running, there's baby booms in CrossFit. Like, I think that's the other thing too, is the visibility. There's so many kind of spearheads that are just aligning. Like I, this really is, I feel like it's a renaissance right now. It really is just this wonderful space to be in. And, and I, in some ways I have FOMO because it would be really fun to be kind of going through this with a little one again, but I'm not that stupid. Um, <laughs> I'm just not, and I'm tired. Um, no, but at the same time, I think it's it's such a beautiful place to sit back knowing where we came from and knowing how simple and how few answers we had and what we were trying to do with nothing. And it's because of pushing forward in research. It's because of clinicians pushing forward and um, you know asking questions. It's because of uh, these pro athletes being open about their stories and being open about trying to get back and and whatnot. Like it's so much that's moving this forward. And I think you know if you have a daughter, <laughs> you're like, okay, all right, this, yeah. this, this is my gift. <laughs> yeah, and and like how do we and even just the the pelvic floor space within athleticism, you yes. know, like we had that systematic review speaking of kiddos, you know, in female adolescents that 43 to 48% of female adolescent athletes are leaking, right? Mm -hmm. Estrogen high state in puberty, estrogen high state in pregnancy and high and low, like the extremes of estrogen are going to relate to higher rates of pelvic floor dysfunction. We could go yep. lots of tangents on that, but if we said that percentage and we replaced leaking with pain, we would right. be just enraged that yeah. we have, you know, 50% yeah. of our female baseball players have pain in their shoulder and people would be like, why are we not doing anything right. about these athletes? Like what's going on with their coaching staff? What's going on with SNC? And our coaches know nothing about the pelvic floor. Well, and they don't know, you know, how do we get to them? Like this was a big topic at female athlete conference in Boston. Right. It's like, how do we talk about, how do we get our coaches involved in the fueling needs, the menstrual cycle, some of these things that are unique to female athletes right. that are influencing their performance and on the other side are making them get out of sport. Well, you know, we know that. Yeah. This is the thing like um, that I don't think I was aware of. So my oldest is a boy. My youngest is a girl. Um, as my son got older, he doesn't play baseball anymore. Um, the boys would have pitch counts. Girls in softball don't. What the hell, right? So like if pitch counts, I'm sorry, I have no idea. What oh, that okay. Um, you can only pitch a certain number of times in a game. And so if you're on a couple of teams, so down here, um, typically if you play on a travel team, you usually play rec too. So if you're pitching for two different teams, they're keeping track of your total pitch count per day, per week, because there's they, they, they don't want to hurt anything. That's all fine and good for boys. Boys have a pitch count. Softball, gigantic pitch, um, no count. They can... And I was like, okay, how can, how can we have a conversation about periods and hormones when you guys can't even talk about shoulders? Yep. yep and absolutely. like, I had no idea. And I'm sitting here watching my daughter's friend just pitch. And I saw her do a double header. I'm like, why is she still out there? And like, oh, there's no pitch count. I'm like, what? Right. Yeah. So these discrepancies that we're seeing between the genders. It's, a, in it's inequity. It is not discrepancy. It is inequity. <laughs> yes. yes. You're right. Um, and, and how do we address it? Yeah. And so, you know, like these, 
when I was at, so female athlete conference was in Boston, Massachusetts. It was this huge multidisciplinary conference. It was incredible. And they were even saying, you know, 10 years ago, the thought of having a conference that was specifically tailoring to the unique needs and considerations of a female athlete was unheard of. Not a thing. To have, you know, that much attention on female athleticism. And now we have the FIFA World Cup that's bringing in more viewers. Like the finals brought in more viewers than the men's final did. You know, we've had volleyball games for women's volleyball games that have had sold out stadiums. And, you know, we're really starting to see this push towards female athleticism. And and at FIFA, they they just announced the big female athlete project yes. that Margie and Sinead DeFore are going to be yes. part of the pregnant postpartum piece yep. where they've been working on for a long time. And what a beautiful thing. Like they had maternity leave policies, they had breastfeeding policies, they had yep. all of these things. And so it is starting to change. It is slow. I th- and we have so much work to do. But we're, we're but, going somewhere. Like I, I think WTA, I think I saw something with a world tennis because a colleague of mine is involved in that too. I think that's going in the same direction as well. And again, like it's just a waterfall effect. It's, it, it yeah, no, it, it, it and it's frustrating because again, you're like, okay, we have so much more to go, but dang, if we're not kind of, you know, making those steps forward, which feels really good to kind of be in that space. Yeah. So my next question for you is like, okay, you finished this PhD You've got geriatrics. And we kind of alluded to this a little bit before we pressed record. Pregnancy, postpartum, geriatrics. There's this funky little space in the middle. Yeah. What how, do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah. It's menopause. I love it. I love it. It's, so, a, it's a trash can. It's a dumpster fire. No. What I are know. we going to do about it? No. <laughs> Um, I have to do about eight more PhDs, but I would get a divorce if I do any more school. So I'm going to have to do it on the show. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when we take a, a zoom out and we look at the female lifespan, I've kind of alluded to this earlier, is that when we have estrogen high states, we have increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunction. So adolescence, puberty, and pregnancy are those two very high estrogen states in the female lifespan. On the flip side... When we have the estrogen low states on the other side of the spectrum, pelvic floor dysfunction also goes up. So postpartum, when you are lactating, you are actually in a very similar hormone profile than when you were in menopause. And then obviously going through the perimenopause, menopause transition. And so my big hairy audacious goal that I guess I will just declare to the jobs about where I want to go is that I just... I, my life goal is that I would love to see this lifespan approach to the interaction of resistance training, pelvic floor dysfunction, and physical function across different hormone states across the lifespan. So I would love to see, you know, some of the work that we're doing on high load resistance training and the interaction with pelvic floor dysfunction and physical function really like span over to the menopausal transition as well. So are we seeing an increase in support or a decrease in support around the pelvis during pregnancy postpartum? What do we see for individuals who are postmenopausal who are resistance training? Is that the same as somebody who took on resistance training very recently versus somebody with a 10-year barbell history? Mm. I'm sure my pelvis, as somebody who's been resistance training now for 12 years in two pregnancies and two postpartum journeys is going to be different than somebody who hasn't had that same history. And, you know, how do we map that out? And, you know, I've talked to some menopause researchers in the last little while, and that's the hard part is that there's so many variables in the menopause piece, because what we're starting to see is, of course, age is a risk factor for so many different conditions, including pelvic floor dysfunction. But it's starting to be a bit more nuanced than that, where we're seeing is it chronological age or has it been age since your menopausal transition? So has it been years in a low estrogen state that are more predictive than the actual age on your birth certificate? And, you know, they're going to be closely related, but somebody who goes into menopause at 50 versus 54, those are four years where you're in potentially a higher estrogen state. If you took hormone therapy, you know, that was very, it was very controversial for a while until we right. got the research on that. Now hormone therapy is more widely accepted. And then we have certain risk groups that it may not be indicated for, which is where the research is kind of teased out. Are they going to have the same profile as other? like, you know, there's just so many different pieces to how do we serve individuals during menopause? And then how do we serve them beyond like our older adults with frailty, like incontinence is one of the leading causes of institutionalization. Absolutely. 
individuals who are on heart meds like diuretics, we know that they stop taking their meds when they have to go out anywhere because the diuretics make them have to pee so bad that they can't be that far from a bathroom. And all we've done is say it negatively impacts your quality of life and you stop taking your meds. And yet we haven't done any type of intervention study to see can we conservatively manage some of those symptoms with urge suppression techniques or those types of things to learn how to help with that bladder outflow problem. You know, so there's just so many questions on the other side. So how do we bridge some of these concepts across the lifespan Mm -hmm. to be able to see this interaction between resistance training as a modality, pelvic floor dysfunction and physical function, because we know that resistance training to physical function is massive. We know that strength is never a weakness. You never go into any part of your life and say, I really wish I was weaker in this moment. It would have made my life easier. We don't. And so we try to get as much muscle mass as we hold on to it for as long as possible. But then how does that link with pelvic floor dysfunction? So we're telling people not to lift heavy weights because it's going to cause them to have pelvic floor issues, but you need to try and be as strong as possible in the lifespan. So there's like this mixed message that's starting to happen. And how do we start to iron out those details? Oh my gosh. There's so, so much good stuff in there. Like one of the things that just popped into my head, you know, when we're talking about Renaissance too, is there has been this big conversation now kind of debunking all the hormone stuff. And I distinctly remember because that was like 2000 and I started in PT in 1999. So that was like right around that. I remember my mom, she watched uh, what the heck her name was on the Today Show. And it was like, okay, then we're screwed for hormones for 20 years. And a colleague of mine here in DC, Rachel Rubin, she's very vocal about um, getting women estrogen. Um, Like, I think there were some articles in New York Times, like just being like, hey, we need to have this conversation about hormones. And I think it's also because of genital urinary symptoms and menopause, which really should just be genital urinary symptoms, period, period, um, related to being <laughs> related to having estrogen <laughs> as a primary hormone. Um, yeah. So I feel like that's kind of part of this too. But there's also this big push lately, to get more information, because we have moms that are more active, going into perimenopause and menopause. And we have a lot of people, again, spewing stuff that doesn't make sense and telling you, oh, you should exercise in relationship to your cycle when people don't really have a reliable way of, of tracking hormone levels. Or and the research you, doesn't support that. No, exactly. Exactly. That's, oh, don't get me started on that. Um, and then you should eat at a certain time or eat here or do this or do that when you switch into perimenopause and menopause, because this is when things, and like, again, we don't have data. What, what was, oh gosh, I can't remember who it was. Um, it was Kirstie Sales that did the review. Um, Kirstie Elliott Sales. Yes. just another gem. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. I can remember day. I know. I know. Kelly so, McNulty was the other one. She's now yep. trans. Kelly McNulty did stuff around uh, period health. And she was the one who was the lead author on the systematic review around exercise and menstrual cycle phases. Yep. And now her postdoctoral work is actually looking in menopause. And so, yeah, so she's kind of transitioning into menopausal work. Oh my and God. she's been like, I'm really, in love. Yeah, I'm yeah, in love. Just, no, cause I, I'm literally sitting here trying to figure out like, who to follow and the people that are putting stuff out that's accessible right now. I know it's not based on the data. Yeah. It's not based on the data and it's very disconcerting sitting here at 47 being like, I don't know what the hell to do, which is kind of eerily reminiscent of a, Oh, I don't know about 13 years ago. (laughs) I know. I know. And you know, it's, it's almost like all of these women who are pioneering for themselves during do it again. Startup need to, yeah, exactly. They need to do it again. Doing now it again. Approaching menopause. And no, it's totally that. It's totally yeah. that. Yeah. And but, so but, it's going to demand more. Yeah. Well, at least we're, we're practiced. I mean, it's, it's not our first rodeo, but the, the other thing that I have been doing is cause I, I do work a lot with runners. And as you well know, runners tend to be allergic to strength training, barbells, things like that for the most part. Um, And I have been planting the seed to say, hey, you might want to think about this because we do have good data on heavyweights improving performance in running. So worst case scenario, you get started sooner. And I was thinking of this when you said, you know, your pelvic floor where you've been resistance training for a long time versus somebody who had just started, what is that going to look like at later stages? If we can get, if, if there is a benefit there, what if we start having these conversations a lot sooner? introducing heavyweight sooner, could that set us up for something 
much better later on. So I'm totally extrapolating from that. And I'm going to completely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm going to just infiltrate my runners and bring them over to the dark side. <laughs> well, it's, and it's funny. Cause again, like I'm just kind of, this is where my brain is going and I'm trying to think about research studies is yeah. when we transition into menopause, when we go into this estrogen lower state, yes. um, we're not estrogen absent, but we're estrogen lower. Mm -hmm. We, kind of have this shift around our pelvis from static support where our ligaments were, were very, um, very much involved in a lot of our feelings of support around our pelvic floor and our vagina. And we switch more to a dynamic support yeah. where, you know, that estrogen affects the collagen of our ligaments and we need that pelvic floor muscle training or that mu muscle strength in order to feel that support but we also tend to do less as we transition right. through menopause through life because life happens. And so we're losing some of the static support, but we also don't have the reserve in our dynamic system mm -hmm. to match those that match that balance shift. And so if we keep the reserve in our entire body strong, when we start to lose that static support, will we feel it less conscientiously? I'm not even talking objective. I'm talking subjectively. I don't know the answer to that. My hypothesis would be that the stronger we are, the more, the, the less we need to rely on our static supports. Right. And we see that in the arthritis research. We see that in a lot of our research, but we haven't really evaluated it in right. pelvic and menopause. So do you just like sit home and like throw ideas on like legal pad after legal pad? I like, like, how do you sleep? <laughs> My husband says I'm exhausting, but I don't know if that's just him saying that. I'm just like, you have all these great ideas and you just literally need like this, this like lab full of minions to just make it so. You're just like, do this, do this, do this. Like, yeah. And I just need the mentors to help me like make the research studies as succinct well, as possible. And that's where like having mentors, like Marky is just so great. Right. They're like, she's like, Christina, I need to bring you back a little bit. Like let's focus on this right but that's when you just need to clone her and then be like all right well <laughs> how do we clone your brain marky but, but it does it takes a village to put christina's eyes ideas to work that's all but you've got like but the really cool ideas because you have you know the the the, the understanding of all these different stages and hormone states and you know resistance understand like it, it's just a cool, like, I could just sit here and let you just spew on top. It's like, I would just like, you know, I feel very thankful to be a research scientist. Yeah. Um, some of my background is I actually went into my PhD for fun. I didn't actually go into it because I wanted to go into academia. My husband, again, he thinks I'm ridiculous, but I just had this research question that I wanted to answer around, mm. you know, I was having frequent flyers on my, my program and I was like, mm. how do I, try and create this preventative model of, of resistance training and reserve. Yeah. And then that translated into how do I create this reserve within our pregnant people? But it has given me this wonderful gift of knowing how research works right. and then blending it with my research space. And so I feel like I get to be this knowledge translation bridge that gets to be involved in the research, but also give that research to clinicians in a way yes. that's hopefully digestible. Yep. And it's very cool to be able to be there. And it's hard because there's so many researchers who are so busy that it's hard getting their information in front of clinicians. So yes. I'm so thankful when they do podcasts and things like that, because yes. I get to be privy to their conversations, yep. you know, about like, you know, some people are thinking in the running literature that it's not actually the pelvic floor supports, but the position of the urethra postpartum that's a determinant of incontinent versus incontinent status in runners. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. And it was just because I was talking to this researcher right. resistance training and about resistance training and the parallels. And so how do we get those conversations out and then yeah. get the clinicians to be like, well, that's really interesting because I've been doing ultrasound and I do notice that it's harder for me to find the bladder neck on individuals right. who are incontinent versus those that aren't. And, you know, does that blend in? And yeah, there's just, well, and that's, cool. And that's just too, that's just dealing with that tiny little wheelhouse there. You start pulling in, um, if you look at any of the um, kind of like return to run tendinopathy, kind of that kind of stuff, there's stuff we've got to pull from there too. Because I swear a lot of pelvic floor stuff is lower extremity driven. I, I joke that the pelvic floor is the mom of the body. Like everybody else is like, eh, 
I'm not doing it. And so the popular is like, all right, fine, I'll do it. Like, I really, like, I really <laughs> do believe that. Like, they just pick up the slack for everybody. But to your point, like, again, the more that we, I think, can hear other conversations and hear what other people are thinking, it inspires us um, to kind of look and pay attention and be like, well, what about this? And, and keeps that inquiry going. And I, I do appreciate one that you are in the gym. And I think that makes such a big difference too, that you had the vulnerability to share so much of your second pregnancy on social media. I think that was just perfect timing. And again, took a lot of kahunas because I know you probably got some crap from a lot of people being like, well, you shouldn't do that. You're going to kill your baby. Um, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but then three, being gracious enough to share not only, you know, the hard experience of, you know, working through research in an area that's kind of adjacent to other stuff, but then kind of pulling it all together and, and gifting it and gifting that conversation to us. So um, yeah. that's, that's why I love you, but oh, what else? <laughs> All yeah, right. All right. It's, it's been so great. I it's just, been fun. It's yeah. been fun. I'm just going to say, like, I don't even know how I found you. I just, you know, it's all good. Good <laughs> love to Alexis too, by the way, yeah, who's been on the show with us. All right. Yeah. So because you've done, I feel like you've done the questions before at the end of the, maybe I, I didn't do them until it, maybe I started them after you guys were on. Um, I changed them up a little bit. Uh, book your reading or podcast you're listening to right now. So up to speed, I, I've actually been reading. So Christine, ah, yes, I'm reading right now. And the podcast that I'm listening to is Big Little Feelings. I listen to them. They're parenting. Oh, yeah. Group. I saw your They started a podcast. And I saw that. So I'm like obsessed. Okay. I, I just want, I just love everything about them. So those are the book and podcast. Love it. I am currently listening to uh, Lori Forner's podcast and she's doing like a Mythbuster thing with Taryn Huam. Um, and so that's what I just dove into. I just saw her podcast with Michelle Lyons too. It was wonderful. Oh, I, I have a lot of questions about the vagus nerve. Yes. I think we talked about this. I was like, oh, we're going to find some funky stuff because COVID and uh, the vagus nerve are not friends. Yes. Um, and those of us that deal with the vagus nerve and pelvic pain and kind of all the other stuff, I have a feeling that we're in for some changes. Uh, yes, I think. Yes, I, I think so. I think so. I know. I know. I, I need to get on the, the bandwagon there um, one of these days here. Okay. So uh, who should we know about? You threw out like, I feel like you answered this question. Like you threw out like 70,000 names. And I'm, I'm going to sound I must sound like a name dropper. Um, no, so no, it's perfect for me because I'm going to like go and Google stalk them and then ask them to come on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, do it. Yeah. So, so in pregnancy and postpartum, so uh, exercise and pregnancy is Margie Davenport's lab. Totally. So uh, research that's coming out of there is really, really wonderful um, in terms of researchers that, you know, I really follow, uh, Janet Shaw and Ingrid Nygaard, Michelle Matola, uh, Linda McLean's lab, which is MFM lab online. They're starting to get more involved in the oh. research space. Um, they are all wonder, oh gosh, I could name a million researchers. Uh, period of the period is Kelly McNulty's lab or mm -hmm. page. Uh, she was doing the work on exercise training during pregnancy and now she's kind of doing some stuff into, um, into menopause mm -hmm. are maybe five or six people that are just wonderful follows if you're looking for evidence and form awesome information that which I think is incredibly important find those people follow them um okay and then I, th this question it's like one piece of advice for new moms but I want to I want to caveat this like one piece of advice for moms maybe they're pregnant right now and they're worried about lifting in pregnancy and postpartum what wh where do you start with them yeah, this is such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I think that the piece of advice I'm going to give you is that strength is not a weakness and I am not afraid of your pelvic symptoms. Nice. We would never be postpartum or we would, so let's, let's kind of step, take a step back. I would never expect you to come back from an injury and come back to take six weeks off and then come back to full range of motion, full function and be completely pain-free. And yet we tell moms after a C-section to go back to exercise after a big surgery and say, you should have full function. You should be completely pain-free. And if, and if you have any symptoms, you're going to ruin something. Yep. And so I, I tell my new moms that when we are trying to get you back, especially to sport, you are demanding a lot of your body and you're going to hit thresholds. And that might mean that you feel heaviness 
or leaking or pain. And I'm not afraid of those symptoms. You did not ruin anything. We are just figuring out where your thresholds are right now so that we can accumulate volume underneath those thresholds and build those thresholds up. I love that. That's, I, I love that. And I think that's so important to take the fear away um, because it's scary and people want to do what they want to do. And if they think that if they notice something, then that's it, that can be killer on your mental health. But to have somebody on your team that says, I ain't afraid of this. Um, I love it because it's like, hey, this just gives us more information. And this just tells us where we need to focus now. Um, You paint my room like when we're doing barbell squats. Great. Now I know when your threshold is. Let's bring some (laughs) up and figure what you did. Hopefully I got it on video so we can take a look. Right? Oh, my God. Love it. Love it. So get yourself a physio who will let you pee in in, in the room while you're lifting a barbell. Yeah. Get a physio that has a barbell in their room, or at least is looking for your videos. Girl, okay, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I do love. I have to. I have to admit, like I've been in my space now. It'll be almost six years in, in February, and um, the beauty of uh, initially it was like this very kind of like warm, comforting place, and now I'm like it's so filled. Like if I ever have to leave here, my garage is just going to be full of like so much equipment and weights and boxes and all of these things that I never, ever would have thought as a public or physical therapist that I would have, but it just, it makes me happy because when women come in, they know that they are seen. They know that they are in a place that um, is not going to deny them or be afraid of their, their stuff, which I like, which I love. Cool. All right. If you want to find out more about Dr. Christina Previtz, <laughs> we are, she's like, should I put my PhD on my name? I'm like, yes, you're going to put the PhD on your name. You earned that bad boy. Um, you can find her on Instagram at dr.christina underscore Previtz or at the barbell mamas. Um, thank you as always. Um, it's a pleasure. And, um, again, one of these days, I know, I know. Okay. 2024, we are definitely doing the in-person thing. Um, I am, I am putting my foot down and saying it's going to happen and it will happen. So have fun at ICS and all that good stuff. So congrats on your PhD and, uh, can't wait to see what paper or commentary comes out next. Thanks for being on the show. See you. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell a friend to do the same. Register now for the free on-demand postpartum mama masterclass, how to overcome the three most common return to run mistakes. You can skip to the good part and get back to running while missing these mistakes. Find this and more free resources under the patient section on carriepagliano.com. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Carrie Pagliano and her guests to the show. The content should not be taken as medical advice and is for entertainment purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.